0: What you see is what you get. Hello, my name is Pastor Chris Miller and I am your host on the PC Speaking Podcast where we are equipping Christians for life. Hello and welcome once again to the PC Speaking Podcast. Uh, Thanks for taking the time to tune in. This week we continue on with our study in the whole armor of God we've been talking about this for several weeks now and one of the things you may have very likely noticed about the whole armor of God is how it is so uh, based in salvation and obedience and those two things definitely play into each piece of the whole armor of God and Paul says about the armor to take up the whole armor put it on leave it on and keep wearing it because Unlike an actual physical set of armor, it doesn't get uncomfortable. You don't have to remove it. The more you wear it, the more comfortable it becomes, the more adept you become at wearing it, the more protective it becomes. Let's go ahead and read our passage again this week, Ephesians chapter six, verses 10 through 18. It says, finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your waist guarded with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having your feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. And above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the fiery arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the spirit always with all kinds of prayer and supplication. To that end, be alert with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Well, today our focus is on the shield of faith, what it is, what it does, and how to use it. Verse 16 says, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the fiery arrows of the evil one. Now, the first thing Paul writes in our verse today, verse 16 on the shield of faith is, and above all. Now, it's sometimes the case That it's difficult to translate words from one language to another and convey the meaning well, which leaves something like this somewhat open to interpretation, you might say, ambiguous. And in this case, we read above all in the language that we use to communicate. And the words above all may sound to us like this is the most important thing you can do. But that's not really the Mm, the thought that I think Paul's trying to convey here. Remember earlier in the passage when he says, take up the whole armor of God, all of it, not part of it. As a partial set of armor, it's only partially effective. Every piece is essential. Every piece is necessary. In regard to spiritual warfare, one piece doesn't enjoy precedence over another. So the shield of faith is certainly an important part of the whole armor of God. But what is most important is the whole armor of God. And Paul is telling us in addition to the rest of the armor, take up the shield of faith and hold it up. Always take up the shield of faith as an essential part of the whole armor of God. The English uh, standard version of the Bible translates this as in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. And maybe that helps with explaining it and understanding it a little more. When Paul says, take up the shield of faith, it's the same language he uses when he says, take up the whole armor of God, pick it up once and for all, put it on, leave it on. Don't take it off. It's metaphorical, doesn't get uncomfortable. So you don't have to take it off there's no need to ever take it off. And matter of fact, we shouldn't take it off. Armor does no good if it's not worn, if it's left lying around. It's only protective when it's properly worn. So above all, take it up. And in addition to the other parts of armor, says uh, Paul says, above all, take up the shield, We'll talk about a shield a little bit, and then we'll talk about the shield of faith and how those two things tie together. But we come to the actual shield itself now. And then the word translated uh, as shield was also at one point used to describe a sizable oblong stone that was used to close off an entryway or a doorway. And a stone used to seal a doorway would probably be difficult to move. It would be difficult to get through. And therefore, it would protect whatever was behind the doorway. And you can see why the word might also be used for shield. And that's what it was used for. Later, it was used to describe a large, oblong, four-cornered shield. Now, shield is intended as the first line of defense. The armor protects its wearer, and then the shield protects the armor, you could say. Ideally, the shield absorbs an attack before the armor does. And this shield would be large enough that a soldier could get entirely behind it. If he needed to, it could provide protection for his entire body. And standing uh, shoulder to shoulder with fellow soldiers fighting as a group, they could interlock those shields and form a phalanx. Uh, which would provide more protection for everyone. You may have seen that at some point in a movie where they've done that. Soldiers might be, who knows, they're attacking a gate or laying siege to a city. They form a phalanx with their shields, and maybe they you know uh, hold them around themselves, and then the ones in the middle hold their shields over their head and protect them from rocks and arrows and things that are flung at them from above. And this shield was often made from wood. It was covered in animal hides. Some say the shields could be soaked in water to help extinguish flaming arrows that may have been fired at them. And then, so that's the shield. And then we come to what kind of shield this is that we're talking about in our passage. And Paul writes, above all, take up the shield of faith. So it's a shield of faith. Again, it's a metaphorical shield, shield of faith. Faith is an important topic. It's a broad topic that there's a lot to say about. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, verse one, that faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. In a dictionary definition of faith uh, is complete trust or confidence in someone or something. Now, we've seen this with other pieces of armor as well, but we can often view the same thing from a couple of different perspectives to give us a better understanding of what we're talking about. And when we talk about the faith part of the shield of faith, which is what the shield is about, every believer has placed their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If someone hasn't done that, they're obviously not a believer. And that is what we as Christians call saving faith. When we believe the gospel, we trust Christ as our savior. That's saving faith. We are saved by grace through faith. And we don't have the shield without that. So that's one perspective of the shield of faith. That's part of the faith that makes up the shield of faith. And then there's also another perspective, which is the faith that we place in the promises and provision of God the confidence we place in him. The shield of faith also involves trust and confidence in God. It's uh, saving faith and it's trust, ongoing trust in God's provision, in God's promises. In a siege, arrows might be fired directly at an enemy or they could also be fired indirectly, maybe over a city wall. Sometimes they would be ignited with fire and if they happened to land on the right target, like a thatched roof, for instance, a single fiery arrow could do substantial damage. And to light those fiery arrows and keep them lit, there was what was called a toe. It was a bundle of fiber that was placed on the end of the arrow, and then it was dipped in pitch or tar, and it was, it was lit on fire. Um, and the toe was made up of the tinder that burned. And I watched a blacksmith make one of these on, I think it was YouTube the other day. And it was like a little fork. And then you stick the fibers in there, you light it on fire and off you go. Paul says the shield of faith is used to extinguish the fiery arrows of the evil one. Again, remember a shield is a first line of defense. It's used to stop fiery arrows before they pierce the one holding the shield. The shield absorbs the attack before the armor has to absorb the attack. And in this case, a fiery arrow, it extinguishes the arrow before it can ignite anything. And this is the same word extinguished that's used in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, which says, don't quench the spirit. That means don't hinder, don't dampen or repress the influence of God as the Holy Spirit. So in quenching the fiery arrows, the evil one, the shield of faith is repressing or hindering the influence of the evil one in your life, like a shock absorber on a motorcycle. You know, when you're riding along in your motorbike and it dampens the jarring effects of bumps in the road or maybe a pothole. It absorbs those so your body doesn't have to absorb those. The shield of faith absorbs or dampens the attacks of the enemy. Satan attacks in, I'm going to say, two main ways. He attacks in doubt and he attacks with temptation. In the Marines, our standard weapon was the M16A2 service rifle. And I think, I think it still is the primary weapon in the Marine Corps in, well, probably most of the U.S. military service. And it is a ranged weapon. It's something that you use from a distance. You attack from a distance. You could say it's a kind of like a very modern version of a bow and arrows. In regards to the effective range of that rifle, there are two different kinds of targets. There's two kinds of effective ranges for it. There's a point target, and an area target. Now the point target is what it sounds like. It's something specific, a point that you might aim at. And in the case of that rifle, uh, a point target is the size of a man's torso, which makes sense considering what it's used for. And the effective range for that point target is 550 meters. Now there was also what was called an area target. And the effective range, of an area target was 800 meters. So it's a little further, but an area target was bigger. An area target was something that was uh, the size of a four-man fire team or the size of a vehicle. Now, if you're firing at an area target for the average shooter, um, considering the eyesight, whatever, if you're firing at an area target, it was more just kind of throwing rounds that way, hoping they might connect with something. It could do damage if it connected, but it wasn't that accurate for the average shooter at 800 meters. Of course, you know some riflemen or snipers use different weapons. They're very skilled, but that's that's a different story. That's a different topic. When archers use fiery arrows, they were mostly used on area type targets. You you see that in the movies. You'll see a. a a line of archers and they just you know, they lean back and they shoot their arrows in an arch at the enemy. And it's just a volley of arrows that they fling in the direction of the enemy, hoping that they might connect with a target. The archer firing the arrow wasn't so much aiming at an individual, but maybe a group of individuals or maybe over a city wall hoping to you know hit a rooftop or something like that, hoping they might connect with a target and set something on fire and do a lot of damage. And soldiers were protected from these attacks by their shield. They get behind their shield, stop the fiery arrows. And I think that we can learn something from that in that Satan often attacks believers in a similar way. When Satan tempts, it's often an indirect attack made hoping that something might connect. A fiery arrow might land in the right spot, might hit the right target, and something might catch fire. And when we think about this, this is how that works. Sin is a good God-given desire exercised outside of God's intended context. And I like that definition. I think I originally learned that from... Timothy Keller, who unfortunately died this past week, but I, I believe that's where I got that definition originally. He's probably out of one of his books. When Satan attacks, it's often an indirect attack. He tries to get you to exercise a good God-given desire outside of God's intended context. And when he attacks, what he's doing is he's throwing temptation out there, maybe throwing it your way out there in general, hoping it might hit its mark, hoping it might start a fire in your life. Satan attempts to use temptation to get believers to exercise good God-given desires outside of God's intended context. And he shoots the fire of fiery arrow of temptation in your direction, trying to get you to do that. And the Bible talks about snares of the devil. And I, it's a similar concept. A snare is a trap that has been set and then you get caught in it. You have to step in the trap though to get caught in it. You step into the snare when you give in to temptation. You're pierced by the fiery arrows of the devil when you put down the shield of faith. When that happens in your life or my life or someone's life, when that happens, someone might say, I'm, I'm under attack. I'm, I'm caught in a snare. I've been pierced by temptation. I've sinned. And that's good. Confession is good. But remember also that these are ranged attacks. They are traps that have been set. And for those things, whether it be a snare or a fiery arrow of temptation, you either have to step into the snare or lower the shield so that the arrow can pierce you. And the thing to understand about that is that that's a decision that you make it's a decision you make you might say what kind of soldier would consciously step into a snare or what kind of soldier would stand on the field of battle and there is a volley of fiery arrows coming their way what kind of soldier would stand there out in the open and lower their shield That seems ridiculous, but that's what we do when we sin. And the vital thing to learn about that is we are responsible for our sins. We make decisions. We can't say the devil made me do it. The devil can't make you do anything. You took the step when you lowered your shield and we need to take responsibility for that. You look at the example of Job, when Satan attacked him and tried to get him to curse God. And even when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness, he said he snares, he fired his arrows, but it's not within his power to force anyone's behavior. You know, there may be a lot of, he's very crafty. He may be able to fire some, some pretty accurate arrows. He might be able to set some pretty seductive snares, but he doesn't have the power to force anyone's behavior. He'll tempt you. He will fire his fiery arrows at you. But how you react to that temptation is your decision to make. When you give in a temptation and exercise a good God-given desire outside of God's intended context, It can spread like fire. It often does spread like fire. One sin leads to another, and it grows, it continues. If it gets big enough, it can burn down your life. And the best example I can think of for that, especially for men, but more and more so for women as time goes on, is pornography. Sexual desire is a good God-given desire exercised outside of God's intended context. Sexual desire is a good thing. It's a great thing when it's exercised within the context that God intends for us to exercise that. It's a wonderful thing. But when we exercise it outside of that context, that's when it becomes sin. Statistics, they are what they are. Um, they can vary. They depend a lot on your sample that you are taking the statistics from. Um, You can take statistics and you can kind of manipulate them to confirm things that you want to confirm. But at the same time, sometimes that's what we have to go on is statistics. So I was digging around on the internet and they vary. So I kind of picked something that was in the middle. But what I found said that 60% 8% 8% of church-going men and over 50% of pastors view pornography on a regular basis. Uh, of young Christians age uh, 18 to 24, 76% actively search for porn on a regular basis. Um, this one kind of surprised me. Uh, only 13% of self-identified Christian women say they never watch porn. And I'm not saying that to accuse anyone. It's not like that. But when we talk about these things and we get them out in the open, uh, we can take away some of the power. We can take away some of that, uh, yeah, just just the power that it has over people. When we're willing to get out in the open and talk about it, confess it, work through it. But temptation is a fiery arrow looking for tender. It's looking for something that will burn, something that's combustible. Uh, I'm very active on social media, on the internet. I post reels um, every day except Sunday. And I have things pop up in my feed occasionally. I say occasionally, it's probably fairly often actually, that are fiery arrows just launched in an attempt to hit someone, hit whoever they might hit and maybe start a fire in their life. Uh, A recent one that I saw that came through my feed was advertising a site to meet someone looking for a quick hookup. No questions asked, completely secret, no strings attached. I'm like, yeah, right. That's a snare. That's a fiery arrow. If you linger there, if you you know dabble with those kinds of things, it's likely that that will catch fire. In 2015, there was a website that was like that, and there was a data breach. All the names and personal details of the people on that website were made public. And several people in ministry positions, pastors, et cetera, were on that website. A couple of people committed suicide. One of them was a chief police, chief of police. It was a terrible thing. But there are all kinds of so-called dating sites out there that are really just casual hookup sites, and they are fiery arrows looking for Tinder, looking for something combustible. And I think it's interesting that one of the better known ones is actually called Tinder. And temptation is a fiery arrow looking for tender. You know, don't read too much into that. That's just me making a point. But a good God-given desire exercised outside of God's intended contacts can lead to a life, a family being burnt down. We could all no doubt think of several fiery arrows the enemy might use hoping to hit a target, just flinging them out there trying to catch somebody with that temptation, trying to burn their life down. So Satan attacks with temptation. That's one way he attacks. He also attacks with doubt, with doubt. And the two are very closely linked, doubt and temptation. Giving into temptation um, most likely involves doubting what God has said. It's not an outright denial, but it may be kind of ignoring it maybe a subtle and deceptive kind of doubt, like when Satan tempted Eve in the garden to disobey God. He used doubt to do that. He said to her, did God really say not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And then he also manipulated and gave her the impression, God doesn't want you to eat that because he, he's withholding something from you. So both temptation and doubt involve disobedience disobedience is a lack of trust or a lack of trust and confidence in what God says, which is faith. Disobedience is actually a lack of faith. We fall into temptation and sin when we believe that what temptation offers is better than what God says is best. Faith remembers that God keeps his promises that God is right. Faith reminds us to live by the commands of God because they're what is best. That requires discipline. Discipline results in something better later. It's often a matter of delayed gratification. Every morning when I get up, I have coffee with my lovely wife we uh, make coffee, we go out on the back behind the house and um, we live on the water, we've got a beautiful spot and we go sit behind the house on the water and we get some morning sun uh, each morning. And then after that, I go back in the house and I take a cold shower and it's not something I enjoy, not something necessarily I want to do. Every time I'm about to jump in that cold water, I'm like, I really don't want to do this. But what it does is it helps me develop discipline after my cold shower i feel great and i think that wasn't easy for me to do but it was the right thing for me to do like living in obedience to jesus requires discipline sometimes more so than others now i mentioned that a shield was sometimes soaked in water to help extinguish fiery arrows for an arrow to start a fire there needs to be fuel for the fire Okay, if it just lands on concrete something like that it's it's uh, ineffective it's impotent it's is going to burn itself out temptation needs combustible fuel and when you think about that what might be combustible fuel for temptation pride pride is combustible fuel being overly self-reliant is combustible fuel for temptation <laughs> We take up the shield of faith when we place our trust and our confidence in God instead of ourselves, and it removes combustible fuel for the fiery arrows of temptation. When we discipline ourselves and practice that long enough in living in the commands of Jesus, holding up that shield of faith, trusting God, putting our confidence in him and his promises, The more we do that, the more our desires will conform to God's desires, to God's will. And we will increasingly desire the same things that God desires as we do that more and more. Now, how do we keep holding up and use that shield of faith? What are some practical ways that we can actually do that? How can we actually use the shield of faith? Well, there are two basic things we can do. One when we're tempted and one when we are attacked. And that's rely on God, not yourself. Self-reliance would lead us to attempt to stand firm in temptation. Self-reliance says, I can toy around with some things or dabble in them or have them around and through my own strength, I won't go there. Like having things around that are that are tempting for me, that uh, putting myself in situations that are tempting, and thinking, "Well, I can control this. I'm not going to go there. I'm standing in my own strength in this." <laughs> Self-reliance leads to saying something like, well, I can I can quit this whenever I want. I can walk away from this whenever I feel like it. You know, I'm actually I'm not actually going to fall into that temptation. And that's what Satan hopes that we do with temptation. He hopes we try to stand up against the fiery arrows of temptation in our own strength. Okay, that that makes us an easy target. I had a really good friend who was a fellow Marine and he was out on the tarmac one day. I, w- I wasn't there for this, unfortunately. I wish it would have been, but something hit the ground near him and he hears this little snap and it looks like, he's like, what is that, a bug or something like that? And he hears these little snaps, snap, snap. He's like, what's going on? And then someone far more experienced than him starts shouting at him, run you idiot, you're being shot at. He didn't realize it, but he was being shot at. So what's he do? And does he stand there? No, he runs for cover. And, you know, people think bullets make a lot of noise, but they really don't. Um, a rifle report does if you are close to it, but as bullets fly by, they just kind of make a little snap. So, what do you do if you're being fired at? You don't stand out in the open like an idiot. You flee, you run for cover, run from temptation, and get behind the shield of faith. The Bible tells us that the flesh is weak. And the way to avoid temptation is to flee from it, not stand there and try to be strong in your own strength against it, but run from it. Self-reliance says, I can handle it. I can take care of this. I can handle this. But 1 Corinthians ten thirteen says, no temptation has taken you except what is common to man. God is faithful and he will not permit you to be tempted above what you can endure, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. So you bear temptation by taking the avenue of escape that God has provided for you, not by standing against it in your own strength, but by fleeing, by running away from it. That may mean walking away. It may mean running away. It may mean turning away. It may mean throwing something away, but whatever it is, God has provided a way for you to escape. And you just need to take that avenue of escape. That's how we deal with temptation. That's how we hold up the shield of faith. Run for cover, get behind the shield of faith. That's how we deal with temptation. Now, what about when you're attacked? And what I mean by attacked is when you are attacked for being good. I saw a lady the other day. um, I, I can't really even remember what it was about, but she made a comment that she was praying for someone. And she was attacked for that. She was flamed for that, for doing good, for offering to pray for someone. And Satan wants to discourage you from doing good. But we also need to be careful about what we think it is to do good. And I've, I've seen situations where Christians have been out there and they, they poke the proverbial hornet's nest calling it doing good, and then they cry about being attacked by Satan when they get stung. Sometimes someone may just be a jerk and they have it coming. Now, the kind of attack we are discussing here is being attacked for actually doing good, for living in obedience to the commands of Jesus, not trying to manipulate or force others to do that because that's a decision everyone has to make for themselves. We want everyone to do that, but we make that decision for ourselves, And that's the kind of attack we're talking about, being attacked for doing good, for praying for others, for loving other people, for doing the right thing, for caring for people in need, stuff like that. So how do we deal with an attack for doing good? Someone said that as pilgrims we walk, as witnesses we talk, as contenders we run, but as fighters, We stand, and I like that quote. I don't know who said it. I wish it did, but I don't. And the last part says though, as fighters, we stand. Why did Paul say to put on the whole armor of God in the first place? Back in verse 11, he said, so that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. When attacked, we stand firm, holding up the shield of faith. And I think one of the great examples of that, probably one of the best ones I can think of off the top of my head is Daniel standing firm in the book of Daniel chapter three. When he's, he and his friends wouldn't worship the golden image, they were thrown into the fiery furnace. And then later in the book of Daniel, Daniel was thrown into the lion's den for praying to God. He stood firm. He wasn't aggressive. He wasn't on the offense. He just stood firm. Self-reliance, and Satan would have us stand firm in temptation and flee from attacks. Taking up the shield of faith is doing the exact opposite of that. Flee from temptation and stand firm when attacked for doing good. We can learn an an amazing lesson from Daniel about faith, and this is a struggle for a lot of Christians. You know, just the way the things the world does. Oh, with the way some people act in the world, with things that happen in the world. It's a real struggle for people, which is understandable. But we also need to understand that the world is going to do whatever the world is going to do. Like the second Psalm says, the nations will rage. The people will plot in vain. You may be attacked for doing what is good. If you are, stand firm in your faith hold up the shield of faith, trusting God and his promises. Let the world rage and plot in vain. It's all in vain. Hold up the shield of faith and stand firm. That guard can only be broken if you lower your shield. Flee, get behind the shield of faith when tempted. Stand firm behind the shield of faith when attacked for doing good. Live in obedience. Be disciplined. Every believer is going to face difficult times. Every person faced difficult times. That's not something that's limited to believers for sure. But there will be times as a Christian that you face difficulty specifically because of your faith in Jesus. There's going to be challenges that come with that. Stand firm behind the shield of faith. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't lower your shield. Take up the shield of faith by trusting God and his promises. Flee when tempted and stand firm when attacked. Thank you for taking the time to listen today. Let me know what you think in the comments. Please consider subscribing and sharing this with someone who might find it helpful.